Mini episode 1400 of the FDH Lounge is brought to you by Sportsology, delivering unconventional columns and webcasts about sports, TV, music, movies, and more. Follow them on the web at sportsology.com. The FDH Lounge. You'll want to schedule your life around it. A long time ago, on a gloomy, wet Cleveland spring night, two men stand alone amidst the late night drizzle. Their voices echo across the vacant station parking lot as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FDH Lounge Mini Episode 1400. This is FDH Management Partner Rick Morris here with two of my favorite FDH Lounge dignitaries. Uh, coincidentally, uh, the guys who were on with me talking baseball, I do remember that it was another big round number, 1100. Uh, we were doing our uh, annual tribute to our friend uh, and late broadcast colleague, Don Coster. And I remember remarking on that at the time that uh, Don would have appreciated that 1100 AM being the frequency for our Cleveland Indians all those years. But uh, 1400, three many episodes later, it's the same three guys. We're doing another baseball segment, and it is today our recap of the 2021 World Series. So joining me, Rick Morris, here in the batter's box today, figuratively, uh, another gentleman from our Sports Talk Network days back then, uh, the guy who I met uh, Don Coster through, uh, Don's brother-in-law and uh, broadcast colleague, along with me as a sidekick on Life's a Pitch with Ken Detweiler. And of course, this would be Ken Detweiler. Ken, welcome back to the program as always, my man. Oh, you got it. Don't forget the rest of that moniker for that title Kent Detweiler and friends there you go uh, I'm happy to, happy to be today with two good friends thank so, you that's fine although I will say that uh my my denim shirt uh, my swag with the, with the little patch on it I think it just says life's a pitch with Ken Detweiler so I don't think there's the end friends on my shirt but uh we'll add it there in spirit Ken <laughs> oh well maybe we were having an Audi yes exactly hey we we all have our ups and downs don't we we all do in life (laughs) (laughs) and that is and i i do know certainly you and uh shall we say the management of that place were the uh martin and steinbrenner of new media in the 2000s no question about that so (laughs) oh my god yes oh my god wow Oh, those were the Story days, my friend. Day. Yes, those were the days. <laughs> and uh, back at the Sports Talk Network, uh, that was in the later days there. That was where I met my other friend and colleague and FDH Lounge dignitary, the great Steve Callis, the sports editor of WestchesterCountyPost.com, co-host of the Callis Remarks podcast with Joe Stazak. You can catch that every week. My good friend, Steve Callis, who, uh, like me, picked the Braves to win in six games. Hey, great to be with both of you guys, but unlike Ken Detweiler, I couldn't pick the MVP, and he happened to do it, so you and I both like the Braves in six, which is a great call, but my goodness, to pick a 40-to-one shot as the MVP, we should, we should get that explanation, Rick, at some point during this uh, during this little talk we're going to have now. Hey, no time like the present. Uh, Ken, what, what puts you onto it? I know there's the, I know we're all trying to block out the memories of 2016, but uh, Solaire, I, I believe he had World Series uh, experience uh, from then. So, did it, was that any factor in this? Dumb luck. Okay. <laughs> Dumb luck. Uh, 
be honest with you, but no, he was batting in the one hole. You know, in the past, you guys have covered enough of these World Series to know there's Bucky Dent, there's this guy, there's that guy. There's somebody's going to be obscure. So I just rolled the dice and, um, you know, I saw, you know, what he had done, thought he had an opportunity to really prove himself, and he did. And it was just like, that guy is cut, though. Yeah. He's really a, yeah. a, a big guy. I don't know what the future holds for him once the team gets back together and his spot will be gone, I guess, at the top of the order but uh, for next year. But who knows? Well, hey, he was traded away by the Cubs after they won the World Series in 2016. So uh, if it happens again, it wouldn't be the first time for him. But, uh, yes, it, it was an incredible call on your part. Uh, I, 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 again, I, I gave the nice no-look pass to Steve Callis there to mention that because I knew he was just uh, itching <laughs> to mention your success in calling him that, that uh, we might have called Braves in six, you said Braves in seven, but yes, this is much bigger to call Jorge Soler, and uh, I, I want to mention here, I mean, there's any number of things I think we want to get to as far as what we saw in the series, but uh, so, something that uh, some, wouldn't even have been possible a couple of years before, because I don't believe he was on the medium until he retired, but a tweet from Vin Scully after the World Series, quote, would you believe in the year Hank Aaron passed away, the Braves won 44 games before the All-Star break, 44 games after the break, and won the World Series the 44th week of the year. Aaron, of course, wore number 44. Maybe the Braves had a secret weapon after all. The first reply to him is some guy who says, this really is amazing. Also, on the day they lost Ronald Lacuna for the rest of the season, the Braves were 44 and 44. <laughs> so, Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, Q Gary the Numbers guy here, all the numerology specialists out there in the world that might uh, read something into that. But uh, Well, and, and I will say this about that, Rick. This is so fascinating, I did not know that. But um, the two managers, we all know, and maybe a lot of listeners know, that Dusty Baker was on deck when uh, Hank Aaron hit a 715th home run. But even more interesting, given this, uh, given this World Series, is that it was Hank Aaron... I believe in 1981, who hired Brian Snitker to work in the Atlanta Braves organization. Yep. And he's a lifer there. I think he might have been maybe a minor leaguer before that, but in 1981, I'm pretty sure it was. Hank Aaron hired him to start his coaching career. And lo and behold, the guy's 66 years old, and all these years later, he managed to, um, you know, he managed to do what he did, which he, you know, you love these baseball lifers. I know we're essentially baseball lifers, not on their level, but to see... Dusty Baker, you know, who was playing in the major leagues in the 60s and still managing at 72, uh, and yeah. still hasn't gotten that World Series, by the way, after yeah. this. And, and you could almost see, when Solaire hit that three-run homer in Game 6, they showed Dusty Baker, and, you know, he just kind of looked down, probably cursed, looked away, and he could see it slipping away, although it was still relatively early, but he could see it slipping away. And then you see Snicker, who barely seems to want to be in front of the media, and the same thing afterwards, he said, yeah, I never believed anything until the end of the game. I didn't believe it. I didn't believe it. I didn't believe it. It's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. So you got to love that in terms of the old school manager type. And even though um, Snitker, that one game, uh, he took out um, Anderson with a no-hitter after five seventy-six pitches. He said, I just went with my gut. But I have to think there was a little analytics, analytics there, too, since the... Uh, you know, I think they were going to go around the third time in the batting order, and that's like the golden, oh, the pitcher's going to get killed. Doesn't matter who the guy is. Doesn't matter if it's Blake Snell last year in game 
six, where the Rays lost their chance to win the World Series. Um, but, you know, it's good to see two all-time guys, even though I think analytics does play some part. It doesn't play the dominant part, and we agree that it shouldn't play the dominant part, but, of course, many others think analytics is the be-all and the end-all. Well, it really was uh, incredible watching the two uh, guys out there, as you said, lifers. And for somebody that is uh, most definitely a lifer, uh, Ken Detweiler here with uh, now five decades plus in the game, the vast majority in coaching and player development here. Uh, Ken, what were your thoughts on watching these two guys moving the pieces on the chessboard? You know, it was fun. I was I, I was torn because of what Steve just said and what you just agreed with, Rick, is mm-hmm. uh, both these guys – being lifers and uh, Dusty being so close to uh, getting that it's age 72. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my heart kind of went out for him also. So, but uh, I mean, I don't know if we're going to see lifers much anymore, the way yeah. the game is going. You know, it's, it's all analytics. It's all front office pulling the strings more so than ever mm-hmm. before. Um, allegedly. Yeah. Um, so, but, uh, no, I just – it was fun to watch these guys. They're both wonderful men from what I could tell, and they both deserved it. And it's just unfortunate that only one could come with the trophy. Yeah, there's always going to be a winner. There's always going to be a loser. And in looking at this here, it was really – it was a weird series because later in the series I ended up being wrong two different times. Generally you see something that turns out to be – a turning point in the series. And when the Braves came back on Saturday night with uh, the back-to-back home runs late in the game, tie it and then take the, the, the lead and go on to win, uh, in, in a game that they were just way down the whole way, I mean, not way, way down, but they didn't look like they had much life. They looked like they were going to be smothered, and they come back and win it. I thought, okay, that's it. They're going to finish them off tomorrow night. Grand slam in the first inning the next night uh, from uh, – that from uh, it, it was it was an amazing shot that was hit by Duvall, and then they give that up, and Houston chips away and comes back and wins it. And I thought, okay, we're going seven now. <laughs> and then Atlanta comes out in the next game and jumps on them, and it was one of those things where it really kind of defied the whole thing of momentum. They often say, Steve Callis, that the momentum is only as good as the next day's starting pitcher, but these two teams coming into this series did not have the starting pitching of some of the teams in the last couple World Series, largely because of injuries. you got McCullers out for Houston. Soroka had already been out for Houston. Uh, you got Charlie Morton going down with a broken twig in Game 1, but not before he went and threw a few more fastballs on it. So it's one of these things where uh, both teams were just kind of patching through with their pitching staffs. It wasn't dominant pitching performances that allowed Houston to come back uh, from the, the, the defeat in Game 4 and Atlanta to come back from the defeat in Game 5. Although, again, it was a really good effort by Max Fried in Game 6, I will say this. But it, it was just a really, really weird World Series in that sense, I felt. Well, I think it's beyond weird. It's like the changing of the guard forever. For, from, from where I'm standing right now, sitting right now, uh, it looks like the game, the pitching part of baseball is only getting more specialized, more specialized, more specialized. Yes. I thought the uh, I thought the turning point in the World Series was Game Four. Yeah, you correctly said the back-to-back homers by Swanson and Soler. The first guy Soler's was a pinch hit 
by the way, you guys know Soler was the first guy in the history of the World Series to ever hit a leadoff home run and later hit a pinch hit, pinch hit home run. Yep. And they were batting eighth and ninth. They're the only eight, nine batters, obviously, because for a hundred years or whatever it was, the pitcher, you know, 70 or 80 years, the pitcher was essentially the ninth batter. But, uh, of course, we still have to talk about the DH, which is hopefully going to be universal next year. I don't know that I was ever for it. I wasn't for it back when they put it in in 73 because I thought eventually we were going towards nine offensive, nine defensive players, and it would become more like football. But it's only been the pitcher. But now I'm, I'm glad it's going to be constant in each league because the stupidity of baseball when they write about it 100 years from now is going to be, how could you have two leagues with a, as big a different a rule as the DH? But I thought the, the game four was the turning point because the Braves started Dylan Lee. His first career start, he was pulled after four batters because you got to go with the quick hook now. Wright came in to only give up one run in that first inning when they had the bases loaded. And for them to win that game, I was like, yeah, this is over. Um, and, of course, it's also easy to say that when you're up 3-1 because rarely the teams do come back, but rarely do they come back. And and also, as for Max Fried, so I posted our thing late. I posted it. I think during game one, <laughs> mm-hmm. I wrote, yeah, we did this the other day. Yeah. Uh, but the real question is, uh, would Steve Callis go off his pick of the Braves at six after Charlie Morton, uh, who I didn't even know I did this during game one. Obviously, he had been hit. I don't think I knew he broke his leg. And could they win without him? And I still picked them because I hate the Astros. They're still the cheaters. We talked a lot about it in the preview. Uh, cheaters shouldn't win. I thought it would have been horrific for baseball if they won, and that would be, oh, well, look at us. We won without cheating. You know, get the hell out of here. <laughs> it still infuriates me. I, won, I don't know how it was in 1919 when the White Sox threw the World Series, and, you know, they were all acquitted in court because the uh, the confessions that they all made somehow literally disappeared, which means they were stolen. And so they were all acquitted, and then Landis kicked them all out anyway. But one final thought for me on the pitching, and this is sad, and this will bother Ken Devlala. The ah. longest starting pitcher in this World Series who went the longest was Max Fried in Game 6. He went six whole innings. Yep. <laughs> and that was the longest yeah. by either starter, by any starter in either team in the 2021 World Series. And I'll say it again, 50, 100 years from now, maybe – People will look back and say this was the beginning of the end of the starting pitcher as a starting pitcher, and eventually you're going to have teams who are going to, and maybe Tampa's already there, you know, they'll throw three out of every five games or openers, as they call them, and you're going to be looking at five, six, eight pitchers a game. And even though they put in that three batter rule, which I'm kind of against from a theory of baseball perspective, even though they did that, you're still going to have opportunities to have five or six or eight pitchers in a game. And um, I personally just think that's terrible for baseball. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, along those lines, uh, Ken, and this is a kind of poignant uh, observation that I'm going to have here, but I think if you're looking at uh, when baseball really started to change in this way, I trace it back to the 2015 World Series because Kansas City, uh, again, they had basically just the one ace pitcher, uh, but then they were doing the whole seven, eight, nine, you know, close it out uh, in there kind of a thing and, and, and trying to use the supersonic bullpen to compensate for the starting pitching. And I say poignant because I happen to remember a Halloween party you were having during that. And it was the last time the old Life's a Pitch cast was all in the same place. Me, you, and Don Coster, and 
me and Don sitting down at your bar and catching up for hours as the game is going on. But uh, great memories of that night and that time. And uh, But that really, to me, Ken, I think somewhat marks kind of a turning point here because a lot of teams were, were looking at what Kansas City did and have just taken it much, much further. Yeah, and I and you know what? I, I remember Steve said at, at some point when we were talking the last time through, If I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but starters only go maybe half the game now, yeah. if that. Yeah. Is that am I am I on point with that? Yes. Five innings or something. Yes, I was gonna say it was five innings. And you know, something that I'm doing and here again, I'm at high school level for goodness sakes. But I've convinced our head coach to listen, let's just go like uh fall ball. If mm-hmm. you guys are familiar with fall ball where you yeah. they, they have the rules where the starter goes four innings or and the other guy goes three or whatever the case may be uh-huh. in a seven inning game. And I'm convinced that at that level, that low, low level, uh, they're doing the same thing down there. Um, because that's, I think that's where the game, like Steve has said, Rick, I think you agreed. Yeah. Uh, that's where it's going. And, uh, it did warm my heart though, because, uh, I'm with Steve and probably you too, Rick. I'm not sure. I'm not going to speak for you on that, but, the shutout, the Strohs, seven to nothing on yeah. their field. Oh my God! Oh yeah. You know, if if it wasn't so late at night, I'd have been hollering at the moon outside. Neighbors would have probably. Oh yeah. Rested. But uh, it was it was like it was just desserts. You know, and I opinion. yeah, and I have family and friends that are Braves fans, so I was fine with the outcome of it. Uh, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to be seeing a lot of happy faces at Thanksgiving. That's for sure. Uh, with that and probably some championship gear uh, while I'm at it. But uh, it was really remarkable in that sense. And, uh, again, the way that both managers maneuvered through this, again, I think it was – I think you guys are right. This is a microcosm of where baseball is going, of using the bullpens to navigate the fact that the rotations are not as dominant as some of the teams we've seen in the World Series in recent years. And, uh, again – that was really something that was uh, put to to great use. And in in looking at this here, uh, as well as the, uh, the the composition of the uh, the lineups and the way that some of the pieces were moved around, and uh, again, Soler being used as a pinch hitter to great effect here, uh, it, it it really is something where uh, again these two guys, you know, like you said, Steve, analytics was definitely at use here in this series, and uh, you know, never more so than when you're looking at the usage of the starting pitchers. But the feel that yeah. both of these managers used, I thought, really was superb throughout this series. Yeah, I think it just still goes to show there is room for that kind of manager, for lack of a better term. You know, you'd, you'd hear so much about older guys kind of being you know, left behind and they don't really understand it. I think smart guys, including baseball lifers, including guys who are now in their 60s and 70s, can use it for the right reason but still have enough confidence in their baseball life, for lack of a better term, to say, yeah, maybe we should do that here. Yeah, maybe this goes against the analytics, right? But yeah, I just have kind of a feeling. Uh, Stuff like that, you don't hear that as much anymore, and you won't. I don't know. Once this, I think Ken's right, once this group of lifers goes, for lack of a better term, um, I think you're going to see more GMs. There's already rumors how, right, GMs call down to the dugout and tell. You know, you kind of wanted Art Howe for a manager there because the rumor was Art Howe was told what to do um, when he went to the Mets also, even then. And, and 
Uh, look, I think if you're in the dugout and you're a manager and you got enough baseball experience to be a manager, you should be able to incorporate analytics into what's going on. And whether we like the shift or not, to me, that's pretty much a proven uh, plus. And what I'd like to know, and I don't think it's figureoutable, for lack of a better word. So they used the shift on Ted Williams. I understand greatest hitter ever, and so it probably didn't really work that great, although it probably did work at times. But what if they shifted everybody back in the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, like they shift virtually everybody today? What would that have done? Coupled with the gloves, as good as they are, we're both old enough to know how crappy gloves were, you know, 40, 50 years ago, compared to what they are today. And 40, 50 years ago, they were great compared to, you know, the 20s and 30s. When you see some old film and you see what those gloves are, I think, Ken, maybe you can comment on this. The reason we're, the re, no, the reason we're taught and we teach kids today um, to catch with two hands is not the same strength as it was when we were kids 100 years ago because the gloves were so bad you almost needed, and I'll go back to the 20s and 30s when I've seen, the gloves were so bad then, and you can see them in the Hall of Fame, there was so nothing then that you had to use two hands to catch a long fly ball. I don't think these saw shortstops going in the hall, in the hall leaving their feet to snag a ball. The gloves just weren't made for that kind of thing back then. And I think that's another big aspect of baseball that nobody talks about. Yes, the plays are incredible. Guys routinely going over the walls now to catch, you know, you see three a week on ESPN top plays, for example. Right. Uh, but I think just a lot of things we don't talk about uh, that have made things change. Um, you know, so when a guy catches with one hand today, an outfielder catches a fly ball, if he drops it, even today, people are like, ah, he should have caught it with two hands. And maybe that's right, but the reality is most catches today are with one hand, and the running catches of today, especially the diving catches of today, infield and outfield, I'm just not sure you could have done that 100 years ago, for example, and maybe even not 60 or 70 or 80 or 90. Yeah, what do you think about that, Ken? Well, I'm going, to, I'm going to say, and Steve and, and Rick, you probably know this too, those gloves were so horrendous back in the days that they would just, before they went into the dugout, they'd leave the damn things out the field. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Hopefully somebody would throw it over the fence, maybe, Steve. I don't know. But, uh, you know, get rid of it so you can get a good one. But today, <laughs> you're right, the, the gloves, I, I look at these kids just at our level, and they're human. You know, they're humongous they're just huge and i said is that a fielder's man is that a first baseman's man is, you know what is that and uh, of course i know the answer when i ask the question and then i go back and try to educate them well back in my day <laughs> you know, i was a third string catcher as a first base as a lefty and all i did was catch batting practice when i wasn't pitching or playing first and all i had was a first baseman's man they didn't have a left-handed catcher's man and I got in two actual innings during a game in high school. Wow. I was scared to death because I had a left-handed pitcher, 6'5", and I'm 6'5", and I'm left-handed. And I thought, holy, Jesus loves us all, I hope, that nobody tries to steal. Because it was a 2 nothing game, and I thought I was going to hit the, the right-handed hitter in the head trying to get the guy at second. And, yep. uh, but, you know, that's another story for another day. But, yeah, I just... Uh, I was so happy to see Freddie Freeman out there. Yes. Along with his manager, because there's truly love for those guys. And, you know, uh, it's just, to me, that's what the game is all about. Um, and I was just, 
I just was, I, that really kind of brought a tear to my eye because it's good to see that, that caring for each other. And I know these guys are traveling around the country game after game from spring training on. Yep. But, uh, so, but one thing I'm going to introduce here, if I may, Rick yeah. and Steve, is mm-hmm. talking about pitching again, Max Fried's ankle. I thought he was going to be cooked and out of the game. Yeah. And I believe it was Michael Brantley stepped on his foot. Right. And I was like, oh, my God, how's he going to be able to walk or pitch or plant or anything? Right. Yeah, well, if I could comment on that, because I had three plays in game six I wanted to talk about just from a straight-up baseball perspective, and that was one of them. And, Ken, you were a pitcher. I was a pitcher. Um, You got sick of doing those drills covering first base in spring training or wherever you went. In college, mm-hmm. we went to Florida a few times. But even in high school, you know, in damn Central Park, we practiced this. And Max Fried made so many mistakes on that play. For him to run in a straight line from home mm-hmm. to first, you never do that. You kind of go before the first baseline a little and kind of, you know, kind of make a left turn going up. You don't go straight to the base, number yeah. one. Number two, he never looked at Freeman at the beginning whenever you saw Freeman was, you know, ready to flip the ball to him. And he yes. wasn't even looking at it. It's so weird that a guy like Max Fried, star major league pitcher, wouldn't know any of this. And then, of course, as you said, the final, when you try and catch the ball at the bag, you have to do two things at once. One's with your, with your arm catching the ball, the other with your leg finding the base, and he couldn't do it. But you're right, it was a miracle. Now, somebody told me, is this true again? Somebody told me that the cleats today are rubber, not metal. Is Because that might have explained, I don't know how he didn't break his angle. Never mind, continue to pick. I don't know, I did not know that. I thought they might have said that at the game. He got him right on the ankle. And the final joke on that play, frankly, is that nobody saw that the runner didn't touch first until they showed, you know, six replays in slow motion. But nobody on the Braves saw it. And they didn't challenge it. And, you know, Reed actually hit first by accident, either with his glove, I couldn't tell, but his his, um, trailing foot just by accident when he fell down, touched first. So no matter what you say about the play, he was out. And even in the world of, you know, replay, uh, he still was safe. You know, we can talk about replay another time, I guess, because it wasn't replay's fault. It was whoever the Braves guy is who's looking at that play. The runner clearly, Brantley, who's who's an excellent player, clearly missed first. And so I thought that was just a bizarre play all the way around. But you're right, arguably the turning point of the World Series right then, because then he got up and uh, got out of a jam, pitched six innings. Again, the longest start of the 2021 World Series by either starting pitcher from either team. And what if he couldn't go? Uh, that might have changed the, the whole World Series. Yeah, because it was, it was when, when Brantley stepped on that, I just thought it was at such an odd angle. And I've had a few broken ankles playing basketball and stuff and it's just like oh my god to have somebody come down on your foot that way it's got to be painful i went i was like oh my god and uh but that's just the way it went i mean obviously that's why he's a professional athlete he's in a lot better shape than i that was incredible i I had two other plays in that game i want to talk about which i just thought were fascinating baseball plays in the context of game six of the world series and that's the solaire three-run homer, which essentially obviously won the game and the World Series. Garcia was pitching on three days rest, which is just more and more of a problem today, short rest. 
you know, we're old enough to remember Koufax going in game seven and 65 on two days rest and couldn't throw breaking ball, threw all fastballs, and I think three hit the Minnesota Twins, three hit shutout to win the 65 World Series. But it's harder and harder nowadays, and now short rest is three days off. Ha, ha, ha. But in any event, Garcia, I thought, was working Soler really well, but it was all breaking balls away, breaking balls away, breaking balls away. Soler fouled off a few of them, was the eighth pitch of the, at bat, and he threw the same breaking ball, but he threw it inside. And inside, so when it kind of broke over middle in to middle, middle, not down and away. And Soler crushed that pitch, and that was the turning pitch point of the game. And then I just want to comment, this irks me so, but I hate the Astros because they're such cheaters. And Correa, I don't know if you guys saw, I don't know if it was during the World Series or before, where he hit a home run and he, like, put his hand on his wrist like it was his watch and he was yelling, my time, my time, my yes. time. <laughs> and you're like, you're like, man, just be quiet and play baseball. Now he's a free agent. But anyway, um, I thought it was interesting that in the bottom of the sixth, um, with a man on first and two outs, Correa struck out. You guys will report, recall the play. And he didn't realize right away that the catcher missed the ball. He ran down to first when he did. He still was thrown out from all the way to the wall to Freddie Freeman stretching to the inside into foul territory on first base. Now, when you're running to first on that kind of play, I understand it might happen to you once a year yeah. or twice a year. It doesn't happen every week. But when you're running to first and you're a righty batter as Korea was and the ball goes outside to the lefty batter's box to the wall, you always run down the right side of the box on the first baseline, which they, they don't really call that, but you're supposed to run within those but then those two lines, which I think are like 20 or 30 feet from first. And Correa, because Freddie Freeman was leaning inside to give a target um, to Darno, uh, for some reason Correa veered left and was right on the foul line as he hit first, which allowed Freddie Freeman to catch the ball. If he runs down on the right line of the two lines, I think there's a real good chance that he gets hit with the ball and it's second and third with two outs. And once again, baseball is such a fine game in terms of those kinds of plays. And of course, nobody talked about it. I don't know, he made a great play. And he did. But if you're if you're the runner in that situation, and you're righty, if you're lefty, you can run right down the middle of those lines because the, the ball's coming from somewhere else. But that's even harder because lefty, obviously, you're a step, step and a half closer. But if Korea runs down to first base on the right, white, line, there are two lines, as you guys know, the last 20, 30 feet, I don't know exactly where they, maybe even 40 feet, but if he ran right down that line, perfectly legal, now he's running right at Freddie Freeman, it's not a game of chicken, he could bail right at the end, but maybe he gets hit in the back, maybe the ball rolls out to right field, maybe it's second and third with two outs, um, but it wasn't, and the inning was over, and that was a great play by Darnell, and Freeman did yeah. the right thing, I'm just saying, base runners can do things just like when you have a runner on third, Ken, I'm sure you teach this all the time. You run down in foul territory in case somebody hits a rocket down the third baseline and hits you, it's a foul ball. But you run back in fair territory just in case Absolutely. the catcher throws down to third. I mean, very right. nuanced stuff in the game that really has even to me been lost by professional announcers. And I don't know that you expect a guy like Korea to know that. He should, I think. But that is, again, that's a play that really only happens once or twice a year. My final complaint, <laughs> my final complaint, which I complained about when we did the preview, is once again, um, 
Altuve hits his 23rd postseason home run and becomes the second all-time home run hitter in the postseason. In the old days of five or ten years ago, they used to at least mention World Series home runs. And I talked about this be, you know, before with Mantle with 18 and Ruth with 15. And Altuve now has 23 postseason home runs. So he is more than Babe Ruth or Mickey Mantle, except that was the fourth. Those two home runs he hit in this World Series were the third and the fourth he's hit in the World Series. So I'll say it forever. You can tell me he's got 23, and he does, but he's got four in the World Series, and that probably puts him in the top, what, 100 all-time? Right. <laughs> Maybe yeah, 125 yeah. all-time. So it just bothers me. And again, you know, who doesn't like Derek Jeter and the way he played? He's got 20. Don't tell me he's Babe Ruth or uh, Mickey Mantle, please. And um, I, I know Manny's got 29, and he at least was a legit home run. I did this. I did this on the other one we did. I think Manny had like five in the World Series or whatever. These guys all have single digits in the World Series. And that means something to me when you have a guy like Duke Snyder with 11 World Series home runs who you can't even find on any list anymore. I think uh, Mantle at 18 is like 10th all-time or something now. And all these guys over the years have just been minimized and minimized and minimized. And now we have, to me, non-home run hitters other than Manny. We have non-home run hitters at the list of those. You know, Bernie Williams has like 22 right. home runs. Or whatever the numbers are. Uh, and I think at some point somebody said, yeah, we're not even going to talk about that anymore. We're just going to talk about postseason home runs. And I think that's a huge mistake. Yeah, I yeah. would probably uh, agree. I want to steer back to Korea for a second here. And uh, I am going to speak for, uh, for Ken on this one, me and him both being North Coast boys here, to pose the question to you uh, here, Steve. Carlos Correa as a free agent. Is even he obnoxious enough to suit up for the New York Yankees? <laughs> I think I think it's we live in a world with whoever pays me the most, I'll suit up anywhere for uh, yeah for money. I don't know if Correa is the guy on a big picture. Correa to me was just more dominant and better. You know, he's twenty seven. I understand, but he's had some injuries. And look, you know, that's another thing we can talk about: the inability of players to. We talked about the inability of pitchers to pitch. You know, if you come out for the seventh, you're like the world's greatest hero. In the old days of yesteryear, if you came out before the seventh, you were like a bum. Yeah. <laughs> What's yeah. wrong with yeah. this guy? So, uh, Korea wouldn't be the guy I'd pick. There's so many shortstops. Right. You guys will laugh. I really like Simeon of Toronto, who played second this year. But he hit 43 home runs. Right. Toronto. People were talking, remember, at the end of the year, they were Black Herrero Jr., MVP, MVP, MVP. Well, I watched a lot of the Blue Jays, because they're in the AL East, and I thought Simeon was every bit as valuable, if not more so, yeah. uh, than an outfielder. Might have he, been. Uh, he was a shortstop, but he played second mostly this year. Uh, and I really like him. But, you know, there's a lot of Seeger from the Dodgers. I mean, there's like six story. There's like six legitimate guys. Uh, and Korea would not be my pick. And I'll say it again, and you can call me an old-timer, but when you're pounding where your watch goes and saying, my time, my time, shut the hell up and go do it some more. Because, yeah. You know, do that after the World Series if you're dumb enough to do it. But, you know, we live in a look-at-me world now. Right. And it didn't used to be like that in baseball or in the world. Now it's kind of like you got to toot your own horn. Right. Because people can't even figure out who the best players are anymore. Back in the day, you would have buzzed the tower if he would have looked at his watch. Yeah. You would have just thrown it high and inside and said, have a seat. Meet. Yeah, that's a good and, point. And that's just – and I say that to some of our kids at the – lower level and I'm sure their their moms would be aghast if they knew I had that conversation with them. But, right. um, <laughs> but I said you know I said don't let them show you up you don't have to hit them but you know 
stare at him, glare at him, whatever you think you would able to take. But uh, no, back in the day, that's what we were taught, um, allegedly. No, I mean, all, all very good points <laughs> from you guys. Uh, it's, it's humbling to soak in the wisdom from you guys. I haven't been so humbled since soaking in the wisdom of Dr. Google Aaron Rodgers, you know, I'm a free thinker. If Joe Rogan tells me to gargle horse piss, I'm going to gargle horse piss. <laughs> so, yeah. But, yeah, no, I would put you guys on a plane far above that, let's just say. So, uh, any wow. any additional thoughts on this year's World Series? I'll start with you, Ken. Well, the one thing, and as, as I'm listening to you guys, and I'm soaking this in because you guys have so much knowledge and stats and stuff and that's why i enjoy this get together and we get together like this is we were talking about steve you mentioned that that these announcers nowadays won't even mention the home runs duke snyder and all the rest of them we got we got crap for announcers i mean these guys are dismal uh, for, for me anyway i i have all the college games college world series games i'm going to watch over the winter as i Buckle in for the nice Cleveland snow that we're going to have at some point. <laughs> and I'd much rather listen to the college announcers and uh, watch that game than the World Series. Oh, so, yeah. Well, yeah, you know, know Buck, with his, Buck with his whole thing about as soon as Freddie Freeman hits the home run, oh, enjoy it while he's in Atlanta, folks. He's probably gone. Like Joe Buck having to crap on the moment there is peak Joe Buck. Yeah, I just don't think now the, you know, Smoltz is Smoltz, so he can, you know, it's interesting to me because I, I want to hear Smoltz tell me expertise about pitching. I don't necessarily need him to tell me, you know, outfielders going against the wall. I don't know exactly. Jim Cobb, to me, was one of the best ever, but I remember him talking oh. about um, outfield play once, and I'm like, yeah, you pitched 23 years in the major leagues or whatever the numbers are. Yeah, maybe you're, you know, maybe you're a Hall of Fame pitcher, and yeah, you know a lot, but I think within the game, it's so sophisticated now. And was when we played and when uh, Ken's been coaching all these years. But um, I agree in terms of the announcer. It's kind of like Jim Nance. They used to have Phil Sims on uh, a Sunday morning show. And, and the gamblers, the real gamblers I knew every Sunday morning would listen to the show for Phil Sims. And then Phil Sims either got fed up or they didn't pay him enough or whatever. Then I don't know if they paid him or not. But he stopped doing it and they brought Jim Nance in. And Jim Nance was defensive. Oh, I told you last week about this. Blah, blah, blah. And I remember thinking, no, no. You guys are the luckiest guys on earth. Does, does Joe Buck get to be with where he is if not for his father? I don't think so. Uh, and no. not that he's not good at announcing, but there's such a, a jump off, which is why you have expert commentators, but I'm even putting that in quotes. Um, but to think that Joe Buck or one of these announcers are going to have the baseball knowledge or the football knowledge or the basketball knowledge uh, that guys like us in baseball at least would hope for, yeah, I, I I think that's a bit of a pipe dream, and you're right. And oh, by the way, if Freddie Freeman left Atlanta, I think they'd burn down Atlanta. They'd be so pissed off, and I don't think there's any way he's leaving. He's got to be a life for Brave, in my view. And he never said that, but the notion, and that might just be a, a, a you know a ploy for more money. If he says, "Oh, I want to be a Brave for life," I don't know that he said that. I didn't hear him. I've seen a few interviews with him. I think he has. I'd be shocked. Huh? I think he said it. Oh, okay, because I'd be shocked if he's not a Brave for life and the notion that he might leave or this might be his last game in an Atlanta Braves uniform is to me preposterous. I agree on the whole announcer thing. Yeah, it was definitely yeah. a clickbait on Joe Buck's part with that. And, uh, you know, you're supposed to be above that at that point, but what do we expect from, uh, the, uh, from a lot of the announcers that we get on these games these days? But, uh, again, 
Well, suffice it to say that the level of analysis you get from them is not the same as what you get from the likes of Ken Detweiler and Steve Callis. To circle back to word that was just used here, when you think of people that are so sophisticated, I think of these two guys. And uh, very good to have them on, as always. So, uh, gentlemen, thank you uh, so much for being here today to break down uh, the aftermath of the 2021 World Series. I really appreciate it. And thank you, everybody, for checking out FDH Lounge Mini Episode 1400.